Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode of Other People is brought to you by $2 Radio, publisher of The Visiting Suit, Stories from My Prison Life by Jiota Zhao. A native of China, when Zhao was 20 years old, he tore a poster of Chairman Mao while inebriated. Several months later, he was arrested in order to fulfill an absurd quota and, without trial, declared a counter-revolutionary. He was sent to a labor prison on an island in Taihu Lake, where he worked in a stone quarry. The visiting suit chronicles his arrest through his release from the labor prison five years later. Scott Spencer says, quote, Zhou De Zhao has made a stark and unforgettable contribution to the literature of imprisonment and survival, end quote, and Book Forum calls him a masterful storyteller. That's The Visiting Suit by Zhou De Zhao. It's available from $2 Radio. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. I'm going to be talking with Elisa Chappelle today. She is the author of the story collection Use Me, available from William Morrow. It was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. And now, most recently, she is the author of Blueprints for Building Better Girls. That's a collection available from Simon & Schuster. Uh, Elisa is a contributing editor and the hot type book columnist at Vanity Fair. And she's also the co-founder and the editor-at-large of Tin House Magazine. And she is formerly a senior editor at the Paris Review. 
So she's done a lot of stuff, a lot of interesting stuff. She's worked for George Plimpton. She's worked for, uh, or she works for Graydon Carter. We're going to talk about all of that in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to discuss the interaction between man and art. Between uh, me and art, I want to discuss the interaction between you and this podcast, between you and art. I also want to talk a little bit about memory, the unreliability of memory, uh, specifically my memory. So I just finished reading this novel called Leaving the Atosha Station by Ben Lerner. It's been getting a, a good deal of press lately, and it's about a poet who's on a fellowship in Madrid. And uh, this poet is sort of a wayward figure. He kind of feels like a phony. He's got this fancy fellowship, but he's not quite sure why he's there or how to do what he's supposed to do. He smokes a lot of hash. He smokes a lot of cigarettes. He takes tranquilizers. He has anxiety issues. Uh, he, in the opening scene of the, of the uh, book, this character, his name is uh, Adam Gordon, he goes to a museum. He's sitting there. He's just smoked some hash. And he goes to this museum every day as kind of a ritual, and he sits in front of a painting. So one day, uh, Adam Gordon comes to this museum, and there is another man sitting in front of his painting. And this is sort of troubling to Adam because it's ruining his ritual. This man is there looking at his painting, and he doesn't want to go to another painting because he likes this one certain painting. And so he sits there, you know, he kind of stands there watching this man who is looking at his painting, and suddenly this man just doubles over and starts weeping. He bursts into tears, and Adam watches this, and then there's this whole uh, odd and kind of funny psychodrama where Adam watches this guy crying, and he wonders if the man is experiencing the painting in some kind of profound way, or you know, is this guy emotionally unstable? Like, Is he having a profound experience of art, or is he the kind of person who might suddenly lose it and tear one of these priceless paintings off the wall and start like stabbing it or something? And so then there's like a security guard and Adam Gordon and this, and this security guard are sort of like looking at each other, watching this guy, you know, and with their eyes, they're sort of communicating like, you know, how do we process this? How do we process this weeping man? Is he crazy or is he actually experiencing this art, you know, at, at the pinnacle? Uh, you know, is he, is he experiencing it in a way that, you know, one would hope you could experience it? So eventually this weeping man turns around and leaves the museum and Adam Gordon, the protagonist, follows him out into the sunlight. So, you know, it's interesting. Later in the book, Adam Gordon winds up, uh, in this one scene, he winds up like lying to this girl and telling her that his mother is dying. That's another kind of tragicomic scene where they're at a party and he's kind of trying to win her favor or create some sort of identity for himself. And he tells this elaborate lie about his background this girl, incidentally, has lost her father, I believe, and so he's he's telling her this to kind of forge a connection. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember the exact details of plot, but you get what I'm saying. It's an interesting book. Uh, I really liked reading it. I think I liked reading it because it speaks to, uh, you know, identity issues. It's bleak, but it's also funny, which I tend to gravitate towards. And, uh, you know, I'm fascinated with the, uh, you know, the, the concept of identity and how we create identities for ourselves in our minds and how we try to cultivate a uh, perception of ourselves in the mind of others, in the minds of others. You know, we're pitching ourselves. We're selling ourselves. That's one of my least favorite phrases, sell yourself. You got to sell yourself constantly. You got to tell stories about yourself. But, you know, this begs the question, what are you selling? Are you actually selling yourself or are you selling some self that you've constructed? Is it even possible to actually sell your true self? And, uh, you know, how reliable it, it gets into all sorts of stuff, but it brings me to memory. 
Uh, I think about this one story that I've told about myself on constant, you know, on several occasions about going on a field trip with like my second grade class to the Ambrosia chocolate factory in Milwaukee and Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, the crazy man, uh, you know, lived in Milwaukee at the time and worked at the Ambrosia chocolate factory. And I tell this story about how I went on this field trip when I was in second grade to the Ambrosia chocolate factory, Jeffrey Dahmer worked there at the time. And I wonder, you know, did we cross paths? Did he look at me? Did I have an exchange with him? And what's interesting is that to be honest, I have absolutely no memory of the factory itself. I only have a memory of the, you know, I have, I, I somehow remember that we did go there. At least I think I do completely unreliable. And yet I've told this story with great confidence on many occasions, trying to what create some sort of perception of me that I have weird experiences. I don't know, but it troubles me that I've told it with such confidence. And it also troubles me that I can't remember clearly. And then, uh, furthermore, I'm troubled by the notion that I don't think I'm capable of weeping in front of a painting. Can you do that? I don't think I can do that. And, you know, to be honest, you, you think about most paintings, think about a lot of abstract art in particular, you know, how is that supposed to elicit weeping? You know, if you really want people to weep in front of a painting, why not paint some really sad stuff? You know, paint, if you want, get, if you want me to weep, paint some animals in danger. That's how I am. You know, you, you, you injure an animal, there's an animal limping around, then, then I'll start to cry. You know, some dog with a cast on its leg. You want, you want to get me to cry? Show me one of those uh, ASPCA commercials. You know, the ones with Sarah McLaughlin. I can't deal with those. That's my profound experience of art. And, and you know, to be honest with you, I'm rarely moved by it. I got to say, uh, rarely, rarely moved to that level. You know, uh, books, I can't think of the last time I cried while reading a book. This book, Leaving the Atosha Station, it moved me, I think, because it deals with the issue of how hard it is to be moved. Not that I cried or anything, but you get what I'm saying. And so I go back in my head to when maybe there was a time in my life where I could have, you know, this kind of paramount, profound experience of art. And I think about going to see concerts when I was young and, you know, remembering how when like you're 19 years old and you go to see a concert, it's like the end of the world. It, it was so important. And, you know, I don't know if I can replicate that again. 18 to 24, that age range, that age range, you go to see a concert, you know, it takes a certain energy or maybe even a, a naivete or, or even like a certain kind of idiocy, like beautiful idiocy to get that ginned up over it. I mean, you know, back in the day, going to see a concert was like church, but it was like an effective church. It was like the antidote to actual church. There was the edifice, there was the large room, there was a congregation, there was singing, but with actual good music, and it was actually fun. And, you know, there weren't a lot of rules. And if the chemical situation was right, people were having actual religious experiences in the audience. They're talking to the heavens. They were seeing things. It felt big. And then the day after, you went over it. You talked about it. You, re you relived the play-by-play. -play. It felt like a shedding of your skin, the reinvention of oneself, the profound experience of art. And, uh, you know, I, it makes me think of this time going to see uh, when I was like 19 and I thought I was a hippie for about a year and a half, uh, going to see the Grateful Dead in Salt Lake City of all places. And it's the middle of winter. I'm there with some buddies. You know, things get out of hand. We're up late. We're at the Mormon Tabernacle at like 2 a.m. We're running around. We're throwing snowballs. It's a lot of fun. And then the next morning, you know, I can't sleep. Neither can my friend. 
We haven't, you know, we've probably slept three hours the whole night. We decide we're going to go skiing. We're young. We can do that. We drive up to Alta. We're going to have a great day. It's perfect day, blue skies, great snow. We get on this ski lift, first chairlift of the day, and a middle-aged woman, like a Salt Lake City woman, sits in between us on the chairlift. She's sort of an extra, and uh, she starts talking to my friend. She's sitting in the middle of us. She's all kinds of happy, and she asks my buddy where he's from. He tells her he's from Colorado. She asks him, uh, you know, where does he go to school? He says, I go to the University of Colorado. She asks him what he's studying. He says he's a religious studies major. And uh, he then tells her that he's going to be a priest. And uh, the woman is thrilled by this. And she starts asking him all kinds of questions. And he answers them one by one, jovially, telling her about his calling and how he's hoping that his ministry will help people and heal the world. And, uh, you know, there's really a connection being forged here. The woman is bowled over. She's telling him how great this is, how neat she thinks this is. And uh, I'm sitting there in silence thinking to myself, you know, he's half crocked. He's working on maybe three hours of sleep. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe he's lost it. Like, I was wondering if he had had some kind of chemical epiphany outside of the Mormon tabernacle or something. And, you know, then we get off the ski lift at the top of the mountain and uh, the woman skis away, smiles and says goodbye. And I turn to my buddy and I'm like, what the fuck? And my buddy, like deadpan, is like, yeah, I was just messing with her. And that woman who, you know, no doubt was religious herself. I got to believe she was Mormon. I think she was Mormon. She skied away in a great mood. And like for the rest of her day and maybe even the rest of her life, you know, thought that she had sat next to some upstanding young priest, some young man who had received a calling. And I think to myself, how many times has that happened to me? How many times have I been fooled like that? You know, in person, on Facebook, in a book, who knows? Does it matter? I mean, if it's a joke, it's one thing. But what about otherwise? You know, I don't know. It's interesting. Identity, the profound experience of art, the unreliability of memory. All I can tell you is that in this show, I'm trying to remove as much artifice as possible. I think that's why I like to do it. I think that was, you know, a big part of the motivation. I'm trying to give you as little bullshit as possible. I'm trying to give you a profound experience of podcast. Profound podcast experience in your brain. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, okay, so uh, I guess I, I, I tend to like to start by asking people where they are. I like to get some sort of like read on the geography situation. <laughs> where, where I am right now? Yeah, like give me, I want a visual read on your surroundings and I want like a broader view of like, like where you live, what's happening there. Okay, um, well I am, I am in Brooklyn in Park Slope, uh, the parlor level of a brownstone in an in a building that I share with another family. I am uh, staring at a fireplace that sadly has no fire in it um, and a very, very <laughs> pacing in a very, very messy uh, living room that is piled with all the books for my uh, next month's column for Vanity Fair, literally towering uh, pillars 
of books and right now to distract myself staring at um, my new collection of moths and um, stick insects. I collect moths and bugs and uh, feathers. So if I turn around, actually I can see the antlers on the wall that are from um, deer that my grandfather and father shot a zillion years ago. And uh, there's another one, um, actually a deer head hanging in my kitchen. See, you can tell how small my house is. I'm standing right in the middle of it, and I can see, I can see my entire universe practically. <laughs> and it sounds like there's lots of taxidermy happening. You know what? There is. I don't know quite what it is. I like, um, I really like uh, skulls and teeth and shells and feathers. I mean, I probably have. I guess. Let's see. I try to bring home a feather from every place that I go that is, you know, that's like a place that I really care about. So there are some, uh, let's see, guinea fowl from Africa, an Amazon parrot, a turkey feather from Tiringham, Massachusetts, where my good friend Rachel lives, a blue jay from the Rocky Mountains, where my grandfather, I mean, my not my grandfather, my father-in-law is. Um, oh, a, <laughs> a Quaker parakeet feather from a, a Quaker parakeet named Birdie that used to belong to my grandfather, who he used to let fly around the house because he doesn't like, uh, he doesn't like cages. And, and neither do I. And one time, Robbie gave me a pair of lovebirds for my uh, birthday. And Who's Robbie? Oh, I'm sorry. My husband, Rob. Oh, okay, okay. I figured as much. Rob Spillman um, gave me a pair of lovebirds that I named Nick and Nora Charles. Uh, but I could never stand to see them in the cage, so I just let them fly around the house, much like my grandfather let Bertie fly around the house. So it, it was quite it was quite amusing to be having a dinner party and have you know Nora buzz the table. <laughs> Although uh, ultimately, uh, keeping letting them out of the cage not such a perfect idea as one of our cats um, got Nora, and uh, when we came home, it was like a scene out of a avian brian de palma film there was like this bloody <laughs> trail of feathers and uh oh, and no. then and then when we took our air conditioner out of the back window for the for the um for the winter time nick flew out the window and sat in the tree for a while out back mocking us but ultimately he uh took off my guess to go to the greenwood cemetery which is out here which is home to the largest uh, non-indigenous exotic bird population in america Oh, really? Yeah, for whatever reason. Well, so, well, I believe that's true. I'm telling it to you with the certainty of someone who believes they're speaking a fact. Yeah, no, it sounds true. I believe you. <laughs> so uh, talk to me a little bit. I want to know a little bit more about uh, these feathers. So when you oh, have these yeah. feathers, like how are they presented? You just have them loose well, or do you have them free? No, God, no. No, 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 no. No, they're all um, – I think I said my dad was a chemist and my grandfather – was an inventor, and so they had a lot of weirdo little bottles, and I collect bottles too. So they're uh, in a variety of um, bottles. So, oh, actually, there are a couple. That's an alcohol bottle. That's a that is a baby. Um, that is a tiny little Jameson bottle, I think. Um, so yes, they're they're arranged in all these bottles, and then there is a white box that I have set up where some of the others are displayed. So it looks kind of like a Cornell box. Oh, and here's yes, a dove feather, feather that Rob brought me from Santiago. Hmm. Yeah. So, I think I better dust them, though. I'm a rotten housekeeper, I can tell you that. 
So now, it looked pretty bad. So now with these oh. uh, with these feathers, like when you go someplace, because I, I got to be honest, like if I'm traveling, I almost never see a feather. Like you must be really looking for feathers. Oh, I um no, absolutely. I'm all you know, which is not always great. Um, looking down all the time when you're someplace beautiful. No, they're everywhere, and I've been fortunate enough to to get to go to some pretty astonishing places with my um, with my mother like going to Tanzania and going to Costa Rica uh, and there are, you know, feathers all over the place. But no, like you go to Florida, like there's a flamingo feather um, and some like a sandpiper feather from uh, Rehoboth Beach where I go in the summertime. So they're not all exotic feathers. Okay. If you start looking down, um, are you in New York City or where are you? No, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles. There's no birds here. I, well, there's pigeons. What about pigeons? Yeah, there's some pigeons. There's okay, see so, you now I have a I have a I have a really disgusting trove of pigeon feathers that I why am I collecting them? I don't know. You know why? Because I read a book about Tesla and Tesla was obsessed with pigeons. He loved them. He, when he was living in the New Yorker hotel, he used to leave the windows open so they would come in, and he had a. He was in love with the pigeon, but he would care for the sick ones and, you know, tend those he was especially fond with. He had a very affectionate relationship with them. Well, see, I have nothing against pigeons. Like, uh, people have, like, oh, they're just rats with wings and all this stuff. Oh, they're gross. Are they? Well, but you know what? Not all of them. Um, And eventually, I think some people just stop seeing them. I, I, I I don't even really think of them so much as birds. Yes, they are kind of like rats with wings, but not that horrible. I mean, they do have feathers. Um, I think it's their eyes that's the problem. They have those beady eyes, that uh, cold beady eyes of a killer. You yeah, know? yeah. Mike Tyson likes pigeons, you know. Oh, okay. Now you've totally ruined it for me. <laughs> or maybe I could make him a beautiful. I could make him something beautiful out of these pigeon feathers. And I was thinking about making some kind of little uh, hair piece. Maybe I could make him some little hair. He doesn't have any hair though, does he? Well, you know, he head can, piece. He... I could make him. I could make him some sort of fabulous head piece. Something, to, co- something to... to cover up his face tattoo. You know. Oh, that's yeah. That's just bad. <laughs> that is just wrong. There's you know just about anything. I, well, I mean, I can. Well, I guess I understand it. No, I guess I can understand why you tattoo your face. But it seems to me there's got to be a fair amount of self-loathing tied up in doing that. It's a lot of commitment. It's a lot of commitment. A face tattoo. It, it really is. You're really going for it. You're really saying, "Okay, all you tattooed people out there, step under this." Ah, uh, yeah, challenge. So, so you don't have a tattoo? I mean, I, I take it you're not. I do have a tattoo. You do? Okay. Do you mind sharing yeah. what it is? My tattoo is on my left shoulder blade, and it is of a burning window. And I have had it, I got it, wow, a long time ago when I was living in the East Village. There used to be a guy down there called Fine Line Mike. And because, um, it can't possibly have been illegal, but there must have been some, the thought was that like people weren't advertising, you know, that you could get a tattoo. Um, Or it wasn't easy to find someone to give you a tattoo. So someone had given me the name of this guy, Fine Line Mike, and I just went to his, uh, I mean, he was a very reputable dude. But I went to his apartment slash studio and showed him this image of this burning window that I had been drawing, I think all my, well, you know, certainly since I was a teenager, for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, But I took him this drawing uh, in magic marker and he got it wet and put it on my back and just did it like that. And it was funny when he, uh, he, when I told him where I wanted it, he scooted over and he said, well, I'm going to move it here so, so you can see it. So people can see it, like if you wear a tank top or something. And I said, no, I don't care. No, I don't care if anybody ever sees it. I just need to know it's there. And I think he found that a little puzzling. But it's interesting. When I, after I had it done, um, you know, I didn't tell my, my parents, obviously. I didn't tell my mother. And when I was on the phone with her, she said, I can tell from your voice that something is different. 
what have you done? I said, I haven't done anything. She said, yes, you have. Have you gotten a tattoo? No way. <laughs> and I said, and I, yeah, totally. And I said, actually, I did get a tattoo. And she said, well, finally, you know, I bet I know what you got. And she did. She knew it was a burning window? She, she, she was like, it's, it's, she wasn't sure exactly what it was. But she's like, oh, you've been, what is it that you've been drawing? You've been drawing some box. What's that box, you know? And so she knew what the shape was. And when I told her, she was like, mm-hmm, okay, got it. Okay, registered. So, so give me the, like, can you, can you, do but I've had it this? done three times. I've had it. I mean, every I've, so I had it first done in black, you know, it was just this black line drawing kind of looks like a prison tattoo. And then years later I went back and had it. Um, I was very depressed when I had it and then I was feeling better years later. And so I went to another guy who was, a, who's a spectacular tattoo artist named Anil Gupta. And I had him build an actual, he built an actual, window window and put in all this color and licks of flame and smoke and sparks and then then uh, the third time was after I had finished um, a book and I was in Portland Oregon where we do the Tin House Festival and I decided that I would get a new lick of flame and so I got a new lick of flame mm. so I've had it so it kind of um follows you know if i look at it i can figure out where uh, where i've been and but i will want a new one for this book i really 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 need a new tattoo and i was thinking about getting a moth but you know like how some moths uh, are all about camouflage i thought i would get one that almost matches my skin that is camouflaged but you know it would have lines but would actually i mean you'd have the shape but uh wait i shouldn't have told you that that's a secret take that i take it back i don't like to talk about my tattoos so strike, strike it from the record Yep, please don't don't say that. Um, are you serious? You don't want me to say that? I mean, because it's on the show. I mean, I don't know if I, what I can do. Uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> so, Actually, what I really have wanted is a white tattoo, a tattoo that doesn't look like it's been put on you, but is coming out out, out of you. That's what I'd really like—a white tattoo. It doesn't yeah. matter if anybody else can see it. Nobody knows what this tattoo is even about. I've never told anybody. Well, uh, you know, now you have to get it. It's almost like official at this point. It's kind of like getting a face tattoo, right? It's like I've committed. <laughs> so, okay. So before we leave tattoos, I, I need to know, like, do you have like a decoded understanding of what this burning window means to you? And, like, oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, God, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Of course. I mean, okay. you can't put something on your body without knowing what it is, so right? Where, where did it originate? Like, can you give me any backstory? Or You know what? I don't really remember. It's just something that I started drawing. I mean, I've always had a, a passion for fire. Um, so I suppose it would have made, it just would have made sense that one of the things that you would draw, not being all that into cars, I wouldn't have drawn like a hot rod, um, would be something that would be, you know, an actual structure burning. And I like trees a lot, so I wouldn't want a burning tree, um, or any kind of burning animal. So I guess, yeah, no, no, it, it just makes sense. I don't, but no, I don't remember, uh, at first when I started drawing it, but later it became, it took on a uh, meaning for me. And, uh, is very, you know, it's become very important to me. I mean, it's a, a huge part of who I am, although you wouldn't know that. Well, no, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I feel like most of the people I know who have tattoos, uh, they've put a considerable amount of thought into it. You know, there are a few friends who just like got drunk on spring break and got something yeah. that they regret, but a I, panther. Yeah, right. I have well, a friend who did that. <laughs> no, I've seen, I've seen so much worse. Like one of my friends actually got feces tattooed on his leg with like, no, he didn't. Yes. What kind of feces, human feces? Like just like a swirl of feces with flies buzzing around it tattooed on his leg. I'm not even kidding. But not like dripping out of his shorts or anything. No, no. It's like on his calf, but it was like, no, see, I, 
it was a drunken That's thing. Gross. Yeah, no, it was a drunken thing, and he was like, "Just put something on me," you know, and like the guy. Was if like, I. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. I would do that maybe, or I could see someone doing it if it was, like, on their foot, if they were unlucky. You know, it's like I'm continually stepping in shit. Like, maybe now <laughs> it will end that I've tattooed it on my foot. But That, would, um, that, that, that seems like to, it would be a very painful tattoo, like to get the bottom of your foot tattooed, right? I think it would tickle like crazy. Yeah. Maybe it would be pleasurable. I don't know. Right. Uh, no, but I know people do do that. I, I think it's hilarious when people do that stuff. I mean, it's, you know, I've... There's, you know, we because we spend time in Portland, Oregon, I've had occasion to see quite a few really, really, really bad hipster tattoos. Sure. You know, these ironic tattoos like Urkel. We saw a guy <laughs> with like a, like a huge, like, like 24 inches of Urkel on his leg. Like practically, I guess, a life-size Urkel, right? <laughs> um, That's and, you know, just stuff that you think, what, what is that about? You're going to be really happy about that in a couple of days. You know, you still got Urkel clinging to your leg. That's, yeah, and that's, there's a woman we know who got a tramp stamp that she thought meant um, peace and prosperity, but meant cattle. <laughs> oh, God. It's just so <laughs> Which tragic. Seems like, well, it seems like payback for getting a tramp stamp anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just... It seems to be the place, you know, that young women, or it used to be anyway. I think now it's like, I think the whole tramp stem thing has gotten enough cultural currency now that, that I think maybe young girls are going to avoid that or no? I don't know. Oh, I hope. Yeah, I don't know. Does Barbie have a tramp stamp yet? No, no she doesn't. That, that would be a great Barbie, a tattoo Barbie. <laughs> that would be awesome. Like she could tattoo like bitch across her knuckles. So that's what I would have my Barbie do. Although actually, I guess you'd ha just have to do bits. Which would mean uh, not enough knuckles, unless you do the sum, which isn't very good for making a fist, right? No, I mean she could maybe double up on one knuckle or something. I don't know. Oh yeah, she could do like yo bitches. <laughs> Although no, you need an e for bitches, right? B i b. Well, not well. You should, anyway, um, I don't think she would do that. Well, okay. Probably. So I think talking about Barbie, this is the perfect opportunity for a, a, like a very elegant segue into discussing. That's what you're known for, Brad, that's the elegant yeah. That's yeah. The Fred Astaire of the Segway. <laughs> uh, but blueprints for building better girls. Uh, you know, Barbie does, I mean, does have some relation, I think, to how you're addressing uh, archetype. Is it archetypal? Is that how you pronounce that yeah. word? Mm -hmm. Archetypal women, their roles in um, society or our visions of them in society and then wanting to subvert those particular visions and expectations that we seem to have for certain kinds of women, like the Barbie or the slut or the... Right. You oh, that's know. so you know, so interesting. I never thought of Barbie in connection with that, although I, my Barbies, I did terrible things to my Barbies. I cut off their hair and drew scars on them. And <laughs> I, there was one that we called Prison Barbie, nice. who was always beating the other Barbies up. So maybe even back then, I was interested in how Barbie wasn't really Barbie, or not every Barbie was a, was a Barbie. They had a secret... A secret life in this case maybe my barbies like to be dominated or maybe they were uh yeah, so dominatrixes you, you had such a more you had such a, a sophisticated uh, approach i was simply just like putting barbie and ken in like you know sexual positions <laughs> yeah well i did Le that but, le leaving them in like the pink corvette for my sister to find essentially so that is brilliant yes i used to push their camper off the back wall <laughs> behind our house see maybe okay so there you go there's a family drama mom and dad have been fighting in the back seat or no i guess they'd be lovers Barbie and Ken are chaste lovers who finally, Ken, in a moment of realizing Barbie will never love him the way he wants to be loved, drives their camper off the wall. I buy that. <laughs> because Barbie because Barbie wants to go back to college. That was the problem. Yeah, she wants to get lazy. She wants to do like her semester abroad and the whole thing. 
she does. Barbie wants a job. And Ken is like, no, no woman of mine is going to work. Uh, <laughs> but no, I am very interested in that. And I've always found, um, I don't know, I don't like, I don't like mass generalizations, and I don't like the idea of uh, being told what to do. I've never liked that, and yet I grew up um, in a culture, in a family where I did what people told me to do, because that was what a gr- girl did. Where'd you grow you up? Know? I grew up in Delaware. Home of Joe and Biden. That, uh, Joe Biden used to live uh, in my neighborhood a very, very long time ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, one of my earliest memories was his wife was killed in a car accident and our class wrote him condolence notes. Oh, my God. Okay. So nice guy. I mean, he strikes me as a nice fellow. He is a lovely man. And his wife is really an extraordinary person. You know, she's a teacher and she does all this charity stuff. And she's she's just one of those. uh, I I don't never know how to say the word indefatigable. Yeah. How do you say? Is that it? Yeah, I think that's right. It's right up archetypal. So no, she she's she's a very cool lady. Um, so yes, I grew up in Delaware. Okay, and so you said you were following orders. I mean, was it a pretty strict household? Or no, no. You know what it was? It wasn't so. No, it's funny because I was like the. Uh, I really wanted to fit in, and I was small and kind of weird, but not weird enough for the weird kids to like me. Um, and not really, you know, the popular kids can smell that you're not you're they're kind of animal, right? They just can see it on you. And so I, but I dressed like them, you know, I wore very preppy clothing um, and tried to fit in in that way. But ultimately, you know, you're outed the moment you open your mouth. Um, And my parents were very groovy. You know, they kind of had longer hair and my mother wore suede pants and fox fur hats. And my dad drove a, you know, TR3 and they didn't look like other people, but we were, uh, but we were very, um, there's just a way, <laughs> it sounds so funny, there's just a way one behaves, right? So I was always brought up that um, you don't make other people uncomfortable, which is very hard if you're someone like me, uh, who always says too much and says the wrong thing. It was just probably, probably, probably I think that is part of the reason that um, probably that I developed a sense of humor as a way to, you know, defend myself. Um, you You just... You just don't want to make other people uncomfortable. There's just certain ways to behave. Um, and it, it's not, it wasn't a strict household so much as that it was, you were just expected to, um, you know, to, to not be a problem. And, and I wasn't. You, yes, exactly. And, and some of it is, uh, you know, don't wear white after Labor Day, wear a skirt to the doctor's office. Um, you know, you would never be standing outside in sweatpants. Uh, you know, good girls don't call boys on the phone. No one calls anyone unless they're an intimate acquaintance after nine o'clock. And I had, and I had curfew and, um, we weren't allowed to like drink or smoke, obviously, until we were of age. And then, of course, it all, you know, then that became just totally acceptable <laughs> because we're, because we're wasps. Um, but no, there was just a, there was just a, an understanding and certainly in the culture where I grew up in Delaware that, um, that girls weren't as smart as boys and that boys didn't like really smart girls. It made them nervous. I mean, it was bad enough to be funny and smart. You know, you really could make kind of knock people um, back on their heels a little bit. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was, you know, the seventies and the eighties. So the image of women, you know, in the media, on television, um, you know, it was like battle of the network stars. Right. 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 Well, and then all this stuff, all this stuff makes me think of the fact, you know, I read something about you where 
you said that you, you also, in addition to your feather collections and your uh, what was it, stick bug collections? Oh, well, yeah. Well, what it, what it is is it's a book. It's a it's a diorama of um, protective form and coloration, and so it's mimics. Okay. Well, but I mean, you also are a collector, I think, of oh, of uh, etiquette books. Of etiquette books, yeah. And it seems oh, like, yeah. like that particular and, uh, that particular um, you know affection or, or fascination is an outgrowth of of what you're talking about with respect to your childhood. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, my grandmother never went out without gloves in her handbag and. Um, smoked with gloves on so as not to discolor her fingers. She never would have. I mean, there's just so many things that like a lady just doesn't do or that a woman just doesn't do. Um, and my mother, of course, broke those rules, but never um, in a way that would be uh, offensive to people. You know, I mean, they were very I'm, I'm making them sound like they were so uptight. I think it was more that just I didn't feel like I belonged where I was. So it's almost like if you go to a foreign country or a, uh, you know, you're like Margaret Mead happening on some tribe that uh, you're unfamiliar with. You want to learn all their customs. Right. So you'll fit in. So I think probably some of that came from wanting to fit in and wanting to learn all the customs. Uh, and some, I mean, certainly the reason that I collect them now is that they're just so wonderful. I mean, I'm looking at one I got out in California on my book tour, which is called Sex and the Office by Helen Gurley Brown. <laughs> which is all about um, leave those mousy assignments to somebody else, said the original sex and girl. I wanted to write girls in offices, how wonderful they are, and how their office life can be rewarding, sexy, and exciting. So it's basically about, you know, how to love a boss, <laughs> how to move onward and upward where the money, the men, and the spoils are even greater. Wow. You know, how to defang your office enemies with politeness. You know, so it's, um, it's all about, uh, you know, it's all etiquette. There's etiquette in every, in every part of our life. And, and, and I do mean... You know, etiquette, etiquette. I'm not talking about, um, you know, not simply just manners right. or self-help. I mean, some of this verges on self-help, but uh, what I'm interested in, at least in terms of the book and in terms of the scope of the book, you know, wanting it to happen over, uh, you know, wanting the stories to be on the 30-year timeline um, was because etiquette changes from era to era. Right. Sure. Um, and it addresses a much broader range of situations, you know, from birth to death, where self-help always targets one problem. Uh, and etiquette's express purpose is to instruct our society on the proper way to behave. And I find that interesting because I'm continually pushing back about, against that, I well, think. Well, yeah. And like, you know, with regard to pushing back via this story collection, and these are, what is it, 10 interlinked stories. Is that a good Eight? Mm-hmm. Okay, so interlinked <clears throat> stories, though, where some of the characters are intersecting, thematically they're related, uh, and, you know, basically, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're subverting, uh, like you set out in writing the book to sort of subvert people's expectations of these archetypes. Yes, and, absolutely. And so my question then would be, you know, you obviously instinctively going into this felt that you know, not everybody fits into such a neat little box. And, you know, what, what do these, like, labels mean? Like, what does the, the slut in society mean? What does the girl with the eating disorder mean? And you wanted to subvert people's expectations. You wanted to try to write stories that would subvert readers' expectations. And my question is, did you also set out to maybe try to, like, subvert your own expectations? 
Well, you know what? When I started writing the book, um, I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. I was, and in fact, I was working on another book when I started writing these stories. I was working on a novel for two and a half years that I abandoned, and I was cheating on that book with these stories. So I was just writing the stories that I needed to write, that I felt um, compelled to write. So when I, yeah, so when I began, I didn't begin with the idea of, oh, I'm subverting these archetypes or um, I want to write about girls that uh, nobody understands. I was writing the stories that I've always written, and it's always been interesting to me to write about, you know, the people and the experiences that we all know and we all share, but nobody likes to talk about. So it was a natural, it, it was just a natural leap that I would create or not a, I wouldn't say it was a natural leap. I would say it, it was just, it just makes sense that I would write a book where all the characters are, are women who are uh, women that we think we know, but who, who we don't really know. Um, and what I'm doing is telling you something about them that hopefully will, in fact, subvert your expectation of who they are because everyone seems to, you know, like to, like to label women because we're so much easier to control once you've labeled us and put us in a little box. Women are dangerous creatures. Uh, women make the best suicide bombers. We're really, we're really good at compartmentalizing. And, it's, and, and people do, and I, and I think it is in part the fact that people do make so many generalizations about women and do try and control them with labels. That, that speaks to me. I, I, know too many, I know too many women who um, other people who, you know, I have too many friends and know too many women who have really interesting, dark, twisted, fascinating pasts who, especially since becoming a mother, who other people pass off as just being dull or boring, or I know who that person is, you know, especially like you live in Park Slope, you see someone pushing a stroller, you know, if she's visible to anyone at all, um, everyone just assumes that she is you know, adult, or she has no sex life, or she doesn't want anything anymore except children. And that's patently false. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, there's like a, there's a huge subsurface layer. I mean, I, I, that registers with me because I'm pushing a stroller. My wife is pushing a stroller. I like, right, no, I like but, to but, think we're more interesting, you know, than people probably perceive us as. Right. And I think, and I think that that is, um, that women can start to believe, well, well, you know what? My guess is that it's not just women who believe what the you know believe the label or start to really feel like they inhabit the label that society puts on them. But I certainly think that women are more inclined to take that on, or certainly young women. Wow. Um, I think in part because we're. Let me think. Now that I've said that, maybe I'm not. Maybe that's not true. Well, I think I think that we can't help but listen to the you know to the voice of our culture telling us who to be right well, but maybe and maybe the identity of women in society and the role that women in society is playing is, is more in flux than male identity does that make any sense well i i think that women have more space to play perhaps right. um but i think male or female you're trying on all these different identities you're trying to figure out who you are and you're probably trying to figure that out throughout your entire life and hopefully you're continually evolving. I think something that has been um, interesting to me, if not, well, I think something that's been difficult for me in hearing, um, you know, or reading reviews is when people say, oh, these women are so dangerous. These women are so depressed. Their lives are so difficult. Oh, these poor women. And I think these are just moments in these women's lives. This isn't their entire life. What I'm doing is writing about the moments that make us who we are. Um, and sometimes those are really, uh, you know, dark, depressing moments. And other times 
they're not. But I, I do think true nature is revealed and the strength of a character is revealed uh, in, in troubled times. So, of course, I'm going to write about women in situations where, um, you know, they're at a point where nothing is ever going to be the same again, where there's great pressure on them. But I'm not writing about their entire lives. I'm sorry? Or to make that kind of generalization. I'm sorry. You, that, just, you know, you just broke up for a second. Can you just, you said you're not writing about their entire lives? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, it, it's a little, it's interesting to me that when critics or some critics, you know, when people talk about the book in terms of being about uh, women who are so dangerous or under pressure or depressed, um, that what they're responding to is what is on the page is, you know, a moment in these women's lives. So the response, you know, by making this generalization that these women are, are all, you know, unhappy women is, is crazy. The fact of the matter is that what I've chosen to do is to write about the moments that in some way made them who they are or was a moment of true feeling where they recognized who they were. And I'm not trying to write about their whole lives. I'm just writing about those moments where our identity perhaps is sharpened or we get to see ourselves in a way in the world um, that we didn't before. Well, and that's the, I mean, uh, it seems like the purpose of short fiction, right? I mean, you're not trying to capture a person in a dull moment where nothing much is happening, you know, where nothing is at stake. No, you're, you're there. You're capturing them, hopefully, at the moment where, uh, you know, everything changes, where nothing will ever be the same again. And in this book, um, those moments are pretty um, recognizable, I think, to a lot of, to a lot of people. I, I'm not writing about um, some fantastic, again, I'm not writing about some fantastic tribe in the middle of the Amazon. I'm writing about intentionally uh, women that we all recognize and who we think we know, but we don't know. I'm, I am continually heartened and um, pleased to have people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you wrote my story. Or they, I can't believe that you said that, which is what I always want to do. I always want to say what you're not supposed to say. You know, someone told me that reading the stories made them feel less lonely, which to me is the highest compliment in the world because part of the reason I wrote the stories was because I was feeling lonely in my experience. Sure. Well, yeah. No. You know, certainly the, the ones about like being a mother come out of having met other mothers and, um, and my own experience. Uh, with shifting into or taking on that identity of being a mother and what that means came out of trying to figure that out. I mean, which is, you know, what writing is about, figuring out what you think, or at least for me, well, no. a large part of writing is writing to figure out what I think. Well, now, what about uh, persona? You know, because like, I, I think that like the, there's an element to this where you're subverting people's expectations or playing with expectation with regard to these uh, different kinds of women or the labels that are often applied to women. And then, you know, there's the other side of it where, uh, you know, women are actively adopting persona. Like you say, people try on identities. And it's not just women. I think men do this too. But as you go through life, you know, uh, women tend to, uh, I mean, are, do you agree that women tend to play with persona and use persona as a way to uh, manipulate their social conditions or you know, respond to work conditions or whatever the case may be? Hmm. That's a very that's a very interesting question. Um, when you say manipulate work conditions, what do you mean? Um, I don't know. I think manipulate might be the wrong verb, but I just I just meant that like sometimes people and it's it's really not gender specific. Though I'd be curious to know if you think that women do more of this than men, or if you feel like it's more prominent. But I think it's just like you know trying on these almost trying on these labels 
as a way mm-hmm. of testing them out or as a way of trying to uh, figure out one's own identity. You know, it's it's sort of tied to what you said about uh, the mysteriousness of women and how women can use, uh, you know, can can use that sometimes uh, as, right. a, as a defense mechanism or as an offense mechanism, you know. Right. No, no, no. Of course. I mean, I think we all play with personas, um, some of us more than others. And I and I do think that in the book, women are put, you know, trying on personas left and right like shoes. Um I think that it is necessary sometimes to adopt a persona, a certain persona, to simply survive in this world. And I think for women, certainly, um, it's a way to pass. It's a way to protect yourself. And I do think that, um, you know, for the in- for instance, uh, the idea of the persona of the slut, right? That's a pretty powerful thing to be uh to, to consider taking on as a, as a person, as a young woman or an adult woman. Um, and yet I do think in some cases that can give a woman a lot of power, um, if not uh, a power that seem, that isn't, to my mind, very uh, legitimate. If, um, oh my God, I'm talking in circles. The idea of personas is so fascinating to me, and I, and I do think about it a lot. Um, and I do think, and I did think about it a lot in the book because of, how maybe, I mean, just maybe, I guess, on a very personal level, I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, but I, I uh, God, what do I want to say about that? I'm sorry, I'm not being very articulate. No, I mean, and you know, um, I guess like, I mean, just to like go back to like the slut persona, um, mm-hmm. you know, and what can be interesting there is, you know, sometimes this, this label, and I'm thinking especially back to like adolescence and, you know, early adolescence and how, freely that label gets applied to, you know, a young girl, even if it's like not necessarily, uh, you know, um, warranted. And yet that, that, that application uh, of a label can really affect, uh, that young girl's perception of herself and her identity, like all the way through her life, you know, like, uh, and it goes for, goes for men too. I mean, right. I mean, it's just, I think that's what fascinates me about it is the way that we kind of uh, identify ourselves with a certain persona or a certain label sometimes, and it might not even correspond with our actual behavior or what's actually true, and yet in some ways it defines you know how we see ourselves and how we carry ourselves in the world. Oh, I think that is absolutely true. I think that so much of our identity is laid down when we are uh, when we are young people. I mean, I guess that's pretty obvious, but being told, um, you know, for instance, but you know. It's, you know, so much of that identity is laid down when we are young and being told uh, as a young woman that you are a slut, particularly, I think, if that young woman has, you know, as in the case in my first story, the character of Heather in Monsters of the Deep, she's never even had sex. The fact of the matter is that she just doesn't look like the rest of the girls. She got breasts before them. Um, she carries herself in a way that is, uh, she's she's confident or she is before she's labeled a slut, very confident. And that kind of confidence is mysterious. And the fact that she appears sexual is very destabilizing to her peers, to both the women, uh, both to the young women and the young men. And the fact that she is called uh, a slut, which is pretty hateful and is demonized in this way, affects all of her relationships with men um, throughout the rest of her life. And it also affects her relationships with women because she doesn't ever really believe again then that she can really trust someone um, because the the young women who turn on her were her friends. 
Um, and in terms of feeling like you can get close to someone or trust someone or actually really um, express your sexuality with a person is incredibly fraught because of the fact that she's had, you know, carried around this label for so long. Right, right. Well, so that uh, I guess then the question that I'd want to ask is like, do you um, identify with any label? Like, did we growing up, were you like book nerd girl or were you like cheerleader? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you have like a, do you, do you have an uh, understanding of your own uh, own self in this particular regard? It's really interesting because I would say in terms of labels, um, I think that I, well, I was both of those things, you know? I was somebody who could get in with the popular kids because I was funny, and if you make them laugh, they'll let you sit at their table with them. Um, I wasn't unattractive, so there were boys who liked me once I got to high school. Uh, But because I did read a lot and because I was funny, I was considered odd, I was, so in some ways very much, I could look like an insider, but I was always an outsider. And so I think that in some ways I've, maybe the thing that I've always thought that I, or what I would identify as being is just, um, I don't know, I guess I'm a watcher. Maybe, no, I guess, you know what it is? I'm probably schizophrenic. (laughs) And that's a big leap from watcher to schizophrenic. (laughs) You know what I think I am? You know what I think I am? I think I'm an empath, right? I've always felt like I can empathize. I can, I can pretty much get into anybody's skin. I can imagine why someone or how someone would do just about anything. I might not agree with it, but I can imagine why they would do it. Um, and I think I'm, I really resist labels, maybe because I've always been labeled because I have been labeled like, Oh, I, I used to be very small. So I, you know, people would carry me around and pick me up and I was cute, like a little kitten. Um, and so, you know, I didn't even like necessarily feel like a human being or like people were seeing me as a human being. So I, I, you know, so I've been that and I've been the bookie girl and I've been the, the kind of popular girl and I've been the party girl. I, you know, I've been all sorts of, of people and I can imagine being all sorts of people. So maybe I, I don't, maybe I resist all labels, but if I had to take on one, I would say that maybe a chameleon is okay. Yeah, a chameleon's nice. I mean, nice friend. I don't like the placement of their eyes, though. <laughs> no, I would want to be a real chameleon. I wouldn't want to be one of those skinks or a lizard who's got the, you know, no. the eyes, on those beady little eyes. Uh, okay, so before, you know, before we, uh, we end, I want to talk about your professional background. I mean, I want to, first of all, tick off some some uh, achievements or some things that you've done. Like you've been a senior editor at the Paris Review. Uh, you have worked at Spy Magazine with Graydon Carter. And then you uh, now uh, you write the hot type page for Vanity Fair. Is that correct? Yes, I do. And then you also co-founded the Tin House Literary Journal and are editor at large for that. Yes, I am. So you, you're doing a lot of stuff. I mean, this looks like a dream, like a dream resume for somebody <laughs> in, li- in the literary arts. Um, it's a dream resume for somebody if they don't mind not having time to see their friends <laughs> or sleep and they don't mind being addicted to speed and uh, having an ulcer. Right. No, I, I have been extraordinarily lucky in my life to get to work with some of, you know, to me, the most outstanding um, figures in the, the literary world. You know, working with George Plimpton was incredible. I so, learned so, so tell much me, tell about me some stories like what was he like? Let's start there. Wow. George is one of those people who can, no matter who he is with, 
make that person feel really uh, special. He really made people believe that he understood them. He could, I remember being at the Miami Book Fair with George and um, the wife of a, some old boxer came up to her and I suppose it was someone that George would have met when he was doing research for the, uh, you know, for, for, for the book he did about boxing, which I want to say, I can't remember what it was called. No, I guess what it was. No, the woman was a boxer's wife who perhaps he had met when he was writing that piece about boxing uh, Sonny Liston. And she came up and started talking to him. And George was able to shift gears and act as though he knew exactly who this woman was. He remembered exactly who her husband was. And he was so socially graceful. It was remarkable. So as a human being, just as a human being, George was, um, you know what George was? He was a great sportsman. He was really... um, you know, he was, he just had like this old school sense, I think, about how one behaves, whether it's at a cocktail party or on the tennis court. I remember watching him play Rob in tennis and George was a fabulous tennis player and Robbie is an okay tennis player. And George didn't, um, play in a way that would embarrass Robbie. He didn't humiliate him. He played just slightly better than Rob, right? So <laughs> game after game, he just played slightly better than Rob. So he won. But he he could have just trounced him. That's an amazing talent. Like I, I you know, I feel like there's also something that's so uh, you know that, that seems like it's kind of been lost over time, or it's just different. There's a a social grace. Like I even can d- detect it regionally. Like I find that in the South, social graces uh, can just be so unbelievable. My family's from the South, so when I go back down there, oh. I wasn't raised there, but my parents were, and so when I go back down there, I do notice like there's just something. There's an easiness to it that, you know, that does take effort, you know, and when somebody can make it look that easy, uh, it's a real talent, you know, it's not, it's not just happening automatically, I don't think. No, and it's something that, um, that can be learned later in life, but certainly, That's what I, I think if you're, I think if you're raised to, um, to think that other people are as important as you are and that their needs are, uh, valid and that they're that that you're what what is that southern saying like you're more likely to get uh flies with honey than vinegar yeah you know pe- people will if you are if you are good to people people will be good to you in return and we must have man, you know there there must be some sort of manners and order in society for us to all live together without killing each other i i think that it's enormously important to be kind to people and respectful to people and i think people in the south are at least um on the surface much more inclined to project um, that sense of, of warmth and generosity and uh, care for for other people. I don't know that that's necessarily in practice true, um, but certainly I think that um, we're, you know, growing up in Delaware, you're not really the, you know, the people in the north don't want you and the people in the south don't want you, that there's, um, you know, and it's funny, the upper part of Delaware is very much like, uh, you know, the, Philadelphia and people talk with a Philly, you know, Philadelphia accent, but lockjaw accent and the people in lower Delaware or as the upper Delaware, people call them slower Delaware, talk with a Southern accent. Um, I think you're, you know, being raised that uh, to be acutely aware of manners in, in a way um, and that you should be polite with people. And sometimes that can be read as being cold or distant when really it's just reserved. Um, but that kind of Southern warmth, that combination, I think makes for, a person who's, um, you know, that that's a that's a pretty winning combination. Yeah, well, and, yeah I mean, well, 
and George wasn't uh he wasn't from the south. He was uh he was the was he northeast? Yes. Okay. So yep. he he had like Absolutely. kind of that, that kind of like Yankee elegance. Yes, that gentleman that <laughs> you know, he's uh, he he was he's someone who you think of as being um a part of the uh, aristocracy, right? right? He's part of a vanishing breed of blue bloods who were uh raised to be um gentlemen. You know, of course that's not always true, and it wasn't always true for George. It's not always true for anybody, obviously, right? Which is what's interesting to us about it. So now tell me about uh, Vanity Fair and Spy Magazine and Graydon Carter. How did that all come about? Um, I, well, the whole thing, I guess, let me think. The first writing job that I had in New York City was, at Spy Magazine. I had written them a letter saying I would do anything to work there. It was in the early days. I think they maybe had two issues um, or maybe three issues. And so I sent them a fan letter, you know, or a plea, like, please let me, uh, let me come and work for you. Let me, I remember saying like, I'll sharpen your pencils. I'll brew your coffee. I'll pick up your dry cleaning, which in the beginning is in fact (laughs) what I mostly did. Uh, And of course, Graydon was one of the founders of Spy and he was an enormous uh, champion of mine. And when, he had magazine editors would call him with an idea for a story. If he couldn't do that story, he would pass it along to one of the his underlings at the magazine. So I got some wonderful assignments that um, that came directly from Graydon. You know, I got to write a fantastic piece for uh, British GQ where they flew me to Parchment State Penitentiary in Mississippi, where I well. Uh, it's for a, a uh, execution. I was going to say it sounds like a like an you know luxurious vacation basically. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was all about a, a death row lawyer who only takes cases on appeal, and uh, so they flew me down there for that. But no, he set me up with lots of incredible opportunities, and when he I, I left Spy to go uh, live the all American writer dream of uh, writing the great American novel in Europe. Uh, when I came back. A shell of a human being. He <laughs> oh, so wait, offered so, so me. Wait, so wait, stop right there. You you left Spy and you're like, I'm going to go write a novel. I'm moving to Europe. Um, you know what? It was I'm, okay. Look, I'm at Spy. I'm living the life. Uh, you know, I'm living this life of Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, and we're going to the Algonquin Hotel. I'm sitting in the bar, and we're going to the White Horse Tavern, and. I'm living the life of of my literary heroes. And at some point, it was probably after I had a uh, a job, you know, uh, probably after I had a performance review with Graydon, where he said to me, you know, your writing is really beautiful and you're very funny, but if you're, um, you know, if if your sentences can't get you across town, you know, what's the point? Or what? What did he say? No, he said, uh, your sentences are like a beautiful car. They're really fun to look at and experience, but if they can't get you across town, what good are they, right? And I had, I, so I was writing these very picturesque, uh, crazy pieces for the magazine that needed a lot of editing. And it was clear that my talent lay not in doing uh, nonfiction reporting, but probably in writing fiction. So Graydon was the one who probably first put that idea in my head that I could, uh, you know, that I could be a fiction writer, which I had always been. I've always been a, write, a fiction writer. But the idea of actually really going for it probably didn't come until um, Graydon kind of gave me permission to do that. And so I moved with Rob to um, 
to uh, Portugal, where uh, we had been before, to a tiny fishing village where I knew we could live very cheaply with the idea of writing the great American novel, um, and then moved for a while into a squat in East Berlin with the same idea that, uh, you know, this would be a great place to write fiction, when in fact it was really more of a great place to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so yeah, and what, ha- when I came- what happened? Were you just like, oh, shit, what am I doing? And then you just basically freaked? Um, you know, actually, it was more complicated than that. Um, it, you know, I guess what happened was that I got there and was working a whole lot, and I actually started to drink um, absinthe, which is a big deal in Portugal, and it's legal, and they make a bootleg version. And at the time, I didn't realize that I had uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, which I had epilepsy as a kid, but I didn't realize that... Um, you know, that this is something that can come back. And so I started having all these uh, olfactory hallucinations and, you know, I, I, the depression that I had been experiencing got worse and I basically had a nervous breakdown oh my goodness. in Berlin. So I had to come home. Yeah, you don't need to know all that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I flamed out <laughs> is and, what happened. And then came back to the States and Graydon hired you again? or Right. So I came home from um, Berlin and wanted to go to graduate school and Graydon knew that I was writing fiction primarily and but he also knew of course that I still wrote nonfiction and was interested in magazines and they were starting the hot type column and I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time he knew that um, he, you know Graydon knew me and he knew that I would love that job and I was lucky enough to get it. Yeah, it's the right fit. So now, here's what I think of when I think of that job and I think of being you, is that people must absolutely bombard you with books. Yes, I get a lot of books. But I mean, and then like people emailing you, begging you to please include my book, because there's only so many books that can be mentioned in Hot Type, right? Well, you you must get this too, right? Yeah, I mean, on a much smaller, I would assume on a much smaller scale, but yeah. Um, yes, I have a lot of people asking me for favors all the time. Uh, it's part of the reason that I stopped going to book parties unless I was really excited about the book or the author was a friend or there was a really good reason for me to be there because I would just find it too stressful. You never know why anyone's being nice to you anyway. Right. Um, and so I just started to feel, it was, you start to feel a little hunted. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, that sounds very negative, but it just, uh, it just, it just was too much for me. So unless I was really enthusiastic about the book or the author was a friend, I stopped going to book parties because of that. I also um, put a message on my machine when the publicists uh, were leaving lots of messages on my home machine that was a sort of threatening, snarky message about that. Um, I, it, yes, it, it's hard, but it's, you know, sometimes someone will be selling you on their book and it ends up being spectacular, and I wouldn't have known about it had they not said something to me but if but it does get um it does get a little tedious sometimes but i guess that's just and anybody who has access to you know millions of people uh you know the ability to put a bug in their ear they're going to get they're going to get bombarded sure i mean do you have any sense of how much of an impact a mention in hot type does for a book i mean can you correlate that or do you not even bother with trying to track that in, you know that sort of th- sort of thing um, you know what? I stay away from numbers in general, pretty much. I uh, 
I've never had a head for for them, and I I think it's part of the temporal lobe epilepsy thing. It part you know is you have difficulty with numbers, so I don't I I have no idea really what um, a mention translates into in terms of numbers or sales, although it's got to be considerable because four million people read the magazine, and I think that's in the states wow. or you know the English edition. Um, I don't even know if there's another edition, right? So if you've got four million people, if you have if you have four million readers. And uh, the book is being put out by a small press or by a first-time author. If I'm able to give them a little bit of publicity, that can be enormous. Sure. It can be huge. And every issue I try to highlight somebody who otherwise wouldn't get wouldn't get highlighted. You know, a first-time author or an obscure book or um, someone who everyone has forgotten about, because I feel like that's part of my job. Well, and okay, so this is a good time to talk about Tin House because you know you can sort of you can see the indie you know the indie publishing um, you know leanings that you have, or at least the the sympathy that you would have. I mean, tell me how you you know you managed to do Tin House in addition to Hot Type and write your own books. I mean, it seems like quite a bit. Well, you know, it's interesting when when we were approached by the publisher of Tin House, Wynn McCormick, we were very resistant at first about starting the magazine in part because Robbie had just, um, he had been working at the New Yorker and I had left the Paris review and the idea of getting back into the literary world wasn't that appealing. I mean, we really just kind of wanted to write, but the more we thought about it and the more we talked about it, the more we realized we had a unique opportunity to get inside the machine and, and mess stuff up, you know, um, to, to, to give, you know, to give the people that we love money, which is a huge thing. Um, it was interesting when we decided, when we announced, you know, announced the magazine and said that every issue we're going to publish someone who's never been published before. My friends at the Paris Review were aghast. All the people that I knew in, you know, literary magazines and even some glossies said, you are, you are so, that is so ridiculous. You are in for such heartache. You are going to have such a hard time finding a new writer for each issue, a poet and a fiction writer um, who haven't been, been published to publish in your pages. And to me, that was the most exciting thing about starting the magazine was the idea that you could discover people. Right? And so how did it work out? I mean, do you find that it's a, it's a struggle to find quality material? or do you No, think- no, I, I don't. I really don't. You know, increasingly what the challenge is, as you will appreciate, is that people, you know, have been published somewhere. You know, not, uh, not a big place or, a, you know, necessarily uh, maybe it's a small place or maybe it's um, an online magazine. But no, I don't. I, it's not hard. It really isn't hard. Okay. That makes me that makes me feel good to hear that because I've been arguing for years, uh, you know, because everyone will say there's you know there's not that many good writers out there, and I kind of feel the opposite. I feel like there's a lot of really talented. Who people. said that? Let's go smack their mailbox with a baseball bat. That is the most ridiculous bit of tripe I have ever heard. Right? There it's, aren't that many good writers out there. Or you know, it's, I think maybe like maybe the, maybe the that's thought. someone who's not reading. Ask that person how many hours of television they watch a week. Yeah, or like maybe there's just not that many like, truly great writers. But it, it just is also subjective, and I find oh, that's I find myself reading something online, you know, just online every day, where I'm like, oh my god, this person is so good. You know? Yes, and I it, think that and I it think that a small blog <sighs> post even, and I'll just be so impressed with it. And I just think that uh, you know, I have a really hard time you know, wrapping my head around those kinds of distinctions, you know, good, bad, 
it just it's a, however it hits me it's a very personal thing and you know making kind of broad declarations of something's worthiness or someone's worthiness or talent is that's very difficult for me i don't have that particular skill set or approach right see i i think in that way we're very similar i i am always inclined as soon as someone tells you something isn't good to want to flip it over and uh and and find that bright spot whether it's a person or um or an or you know or a book or, you know, music, whatever. Um, I think that, I mean, someone who would say there's no good writers out there, truly great writers, has this person read Joy Williams? Yeah. I mean, or, or Marilyn Robinson? Or or Deb Eisenberg? Or, or read any, you know, read Joan Didion? It's, 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 that's, those kind of sweeping generalizations make me crazy. That, that is just ignorant. They're the same, okay, they're the same people who, who would say that all mothers are the same, or all girls in college are the same, or everyone who falls in love, uh, with someone, um, who isn't good for them is going to, is, you know, it's going to end in heartache. Uh, that that is just lunacy. That okay, that makes I, me crazy. So I think we I think we <laughs> might have landed on your next book. Like you can do like a nonfiction collection of profiles of writers where we think we know these writers. We think we know their work. We think we know who they are and how to label them. But in reality, they're not at all who we think they are. Is that now terrible, see that is that a terrible idea? I don't think that's a terrible idea at all. I, I maybe we should start with you. Yeah. Okay. I'll be your first <laughs> test subject. <laughs> You can, come, you, can come, you can come, like, do field research and just, like, live in my apartment and wear, like, a white lab coat and observe me. That would be great. Well, aren't you surprised? I'm always – people seem surprised when they meet me that, um, you know, people come up to me and they say, wow, I thought you'd be bigger. <laughs> or they say, I, th- I thought you'd be so mean. You're so nice. I thought you'd be such a bitch. How many people have said to me, I was scared to talk to you because I thought you would really be a bitch. From your work. I thought you would be a bitch. You know, they're confusing you with your work. But that's a terrible thing to say to someone. Yeah, it is. And so certainly, what you, when, So what do you say? What is your response? You well, have have general, generally, they haven't said, gosh, I thought you would be such a bitch until they've seen that I'm not. So it does seem like a bad time to, to say something really bitchy to them. The people who say, oh, my goodness, I thought you'd be bigger. Um, I generally think, wow, I thought you would have better manners. <laughs> And sometimes I kind of laugh, and other times, uh, you know, I, I I have said that to people. Wow, huh? I thought that you would uh, you you would have better manners than that. <laughs> well, that seems, people, that seems like the, that seems are, like an appropriate response. Well, people are always confusing writers with their work, which is frustrating. And I think they do it more with women writers than they do with men writers. Um, and again, I think that's kind of about trying to control trying to control the image uh or trying to control a woman right this is who you are this is what you write well i'm uh, not i'm not trying to control you i promise I'm oh hard no 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 I'm but you know what i mean no you know what i mean i know what you mean uh and you know it's been great to talk with you uh, this has been so fun and uh, I hope that everybody goes out and buys a copy of Blueprints for Building Better Girls and, uh, you know, checks out your column in Vanity Fair. I, I assume most of our listeners uh, have been reading it for years anyways. So. Well, I hope so, because my children have become addicted to food and shelter, as have I. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, Brad, I'm, I, it was a great pleasure, and I hope that, uh, that something that I said made sense. Uh, I think a lot of it made sense. We'll, we'll have to see. You know, we'll have to well, listen if to not, playback. Well, if not, you can call me back, and I will uh, try and be more articulate. All right, we got a we got we got a deal. <laughs> okay, take care. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. 
Okay, there you have it. That's the program. That's Elisa Chappelle for the hour. What a uh, great conversation. What a great conversationalist. Go get her book. It's called Blueprints for Building Better Girls. It's available now wherever books are sold from Simon & Schuster. If you want to follow her on Twitter, her Twitter handle is at Elisa Chappelle. That's E-L-I-S-S-A. And Chappelle is S-C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. At Elisa Chappelle. This show, it has a website, otherpeoplepod.com. You can follow it on Twitter at otherpeoplepod. I I can be followed on Twitter at Brad Listy. And uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Before I sign off, uh, I do have a memory. I think I have a memory of another profound experience of art that I may have had. And uh, I recall that I was in Paris. This was years ago. I was, uh, it was a summer. I was doing like the trains after college. I was a bit wayward myself. And I remember ducking into an art house theater. I was alone and I ducked into an art house theater to go see Magnolia, that Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And I do remember having kind of a a profound experience of art with that movie. I seem to remember being in in the theater. There there were like two or three other people in the theater. It was a matinee. And I remember feeling as though I were like cemented into my seat as the credits rolled. I think I remember that. And so maybe that was a profound experience of art. Or, you know, there's another side of me that thinks maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was inauthentic. Maybe... I felt like I was supposed to be having a profound experience of art because I was in Paris and I was alone and I was young and I was in an art house theater and I was seeing a Paul Thomas Anderson magnum opus matinee, you know, maybe that's, you know, it seems like that can happen. Like sometimes you can be in a certain place doing a certain something and you can feel like you need to be having a profound experience. Like that's what's supposed to happen. And so then you try to rise to meet the moment and maybe you manufacture a feeling of profundity within yourself that isn't 100% authentic. So it gets me thinking and wondering if maybe in order to have an actually authentic, you know, profound experience of art, maybe you need to be someplace uh, odd or unexpected. Like maybe you need to be in Sheboygan or maybe you need to be in a shopping mall staring at some fountain. You know, and so I don't know, I I guess I I would I would uh, add that I hope that something that was said in this podcast generated within you or elicited within you a feeling of profundity. But if we're going to follow this whole train of thought about, you know, uh, the the fact that you can't force it, if we're going to follow that train of thought, if we're going to believe in it, then uh, I'd like you to forget everything I said about trying to create a profound experience of podcast. I want it to happen naturally and spontaneously. I don't want you to feel pressure. I don't want you to feel like you have to listen to this show and somehow have that kind of experience. I I just want it to be loose, okay? So forget I said that. Just be in the moment. Just relax. Just let it happen. It's going to happen eventually, someday. 